Lotus Pod. Welcome to another, or the very first, spooky episode of Lost and Found and Rewound. I'm Chris Lost. I'm Found Jim. And I'm Rick Rewound. We had one episode where we mentioned Halloween while we were recording the episode. So is that the episode that's coming up next? It's the next one, yeah. So we're a year year ahead of ourselves? We are... um, 10 days away from a year from that episode. Wow. We're turning the corner. <laughs> well, we've been turning the corner, haven't we? I feel like we've been turning, yeah, turning, you know, you turn a corner enough times and you start right back where you were. It's more like a circle. You That's know, right. just been going around this, turning the circle. <laughs> That's exactly That's what a, this is. <laughs> a, circle, a circle, a circle which is a very smooth corner. It's a corner that never ends. Yeah. It's the eternal corner. Smooth, endless corner. Yeah. Isn't that what life is? Just the the endless corner? Depending on what you believe. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking, should we call our our holiday show the Horror Harvest or the Harvest of Horror? What would you guys, (laughs) what would you guys call it? Just the Horror. Well, you got to work harvest in there because, you know, when we grew up, there was harvest days, right? Mm-hmm. I remember I, I saw Motorhead at uh, around this time of year. It was called, they called the show Halloween Horror 86. <laughs> that was one of the best shows I ever saw at the Aragon. What year was that? <laughs> I'm not telling. 92. <laughs> No, Halloween Good. Horror 86, Rick. Oh, I thought you 86 someone, right? You kill them? <laughs> oh, good year. Good year for a horror show. Yeah. 86. It, I'm it's sure the only The only show that sounded good, That it's the only show I've, <coughs> the only show I've been to it, at the Aragon that sounded good. It's like they overpowered the space. Yeah, that was that was the thing about that Sonic Youth Public Enemy show was that the first thirty seconds of Public Enemy was the best thing I ever heard, and then somebody told the sound guy to stop, <laughs> and it, it <laughs> dropped by about twenty or thirty dB, and then and all just of a sudden turned it to an echo. Yeah, the same echo fest crappy sound that's always in that place. But it was that is the key is that you have to be blisteringly loud in order to overwhelm. The building yeah. itself, yeah. yeah, but yeah, yeah the was, the the PA company would not allow whoever was mixing Public Enemy to continue <laughs> what they were doing. That's terrible. That's a crime. It's a hate crime. 
what went on. <laughs> well, it was there was a riot afterwards. There was a the, the pol- a police riot. The police beat on a bunch of people after the show. Not mm-hmm. the Motorhead. I, I yeah. the Motorhead show. I'm well. I'm sure the police beat on people after the Motorhead show, but no one knew about it. <laughs> well, that's what makes it sort of a post punk show, right? Didn't all those like um, Black Flag shows always end up with the cops showing up and beating the shit out of everybody? <laughs> And was the Motorhead show, did you lose your shoe, Jim? No, that was uh, Sonic Youth at oh, the okay. Cabaret Metro. Probably that same year, actually. It's probably 1986. So was Public Enemy opening for Sonic Youth, or was Sonic Youth opening for Public Enemy? Sonic Youth was, op- well, it was kind of like a double headliner, but I think they were opening. And then yeah. were you guys ever on one of those bills? Do I feel like I saw you guys play with Public Enemy. We yeah. did. Yeah, you were, yeah, in... Uh, at Lawrence. KU, right? Yeah. yeah. Was Sonic Youth there? No. <laughs> that was the rationale is that Sonic Youth played with Public Enemy, so we could go to the middle of, was, was it Kansas? Mm-hmm. And play to a bunch of white kids opening for Public Enemy, but apparently systemic racism is not something that they white kids have a problem with, but they have a problem with a white punk rock band opening for Public Enemy. They were really upset. Public Enemy were great. They were fine with us playing with them. But the white kids did not like their uh, the races yeah. to mix on stage. I don't, I don't remember that being... I don't remember, I don't remember that show at all. I just remember a thin room, like a thin sort of tunnel-like room. It almost felt like a cafeteria or something that you were playing. I don't even remember what yeah. room it was. Flavor Flav was late because he couldn't find his clock. <laughs> is that a joke? That's what or he said. He said, sorry, I'm late. I couldn't find my clock. I think <laughs> well, that's probably I mean, what he said at every show he showed up late to. In his defense, how are you supposed to spell, spell time? How are you supposed to spell time without your clock? <laughs> that's what I'm saying there. I don't remember people booing at the show or anything. Were people booing or something? Did they throw mm-hmm. stuff at you? What'd they do? Yeah, they were not happy. There were people holding up their tickets. Tickets said public enemy with special guest, and they were covering over special guest and holding them up. That was at least the front row. Uh, It was very weird. I did want to take a few minutes, just or a minute or so, just to apologize. This is a segment we like to call I Apologize. (laughs) Uh, And if I had some hoots do, I'd sort of crank that in for 15 seconds here. But... um, I've been listening to some of the episodes and I realize I've made some missteps and I want to, I want to, you know, in the, in the interest of that. So first I want to apologize to my vocal instructor in no way were my vocal lessons dehumanizing. Just want to state that. That's, that's, that's not true. So you she got what a lawsuit coming up or something or a threat of a lawsuit? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Avoid the lawsuit. Right. No, she's a very nice person. I just uh, have a very low self-esteem and so, Criticism. I don't take constructive or deconstructive criticism very well. <laughs> and uh, you have to have to do both to get someone to sing, right? Well, well, I'm not going to get myself back in trouble now <laughs> by saying something like that. But boy, it did feel like that. <laughs> I want to apologize to a man by the name of Warren Beatty. <laughs> um, my inability, my inability to find you attractive, has to do with my own self-image issues. I'm sure someone in the world thinks you are comely. I just want to put that out there. Uh, and then one more. Uh, I want to apologize to people with curly hair 
and too much body hair in general. Again, it's a self-image issue with me. I should be proud of all of us. I'm sorry if I can't be furry proud. If you're out there and you've got a lot of body hair, and God bless you. When when is the apology coming? Where you you tell us that you realize now that Parallax View is a good movie? Well, I'm not going to do that because <laughs> it's not. Right. <laughs> it's got that great um, sociopath segment in it. Uh, but other than that, it's kind of not so great. I wanted to announce our blues charity total. I figured we might as well cut that off and make that donation. So we figured we've seen Blues Brothers collectively, including your mom and my son, about 30 times. And then we had uh, 49 downloads of the episode to date. Wow. So that's about 79. And that's that's a lot for the because the main episodes sort of get more downloads than the side episodes. So I'm going to round that up to I'm going to say 49 plus 30 equals 100 and we're going to we're going to donate. Uh, I'm going to donate on behalf of our podcast $1000 to to uh, I think it was the Heart wow. Fund uh to help blues musicians primarily of uh black or African American descent. And so uh we're going to it's a small amount but it's you know it's our money. We're not using uh, crowdfunding or anything like that to do it. So happy to do it. Thank you for doing that, Chris. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. A Bond movie will be out soon. Gentlemen, you like British films. <laughs> I thought I would ask, what is the best James Bond theme song? Oh, like Jim, the, you... the, the, the opening number. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Best. Jim, you go first. <laughs> Um, geez. Have know. you seen the James Bond films? <laughs> yes. I, <laughs> several. I, you know, I, I would have to just gut, go with a, you know, classic, I don't know, early ones. I don't know, like Thunderball or the obvious ones. What, oh, I'm trying to think of something more interesting though. I don't know. I, it's been a long time since I've seen a lot of those. So, but Thunderball always comes to mind. Oh, uh, what's his name? Yeah, uh, yeah. The Welsh guy. guy. The Welsh guy. <laughs> Tom Jones. Did Tom, he do Tom Jones. Jones. Oh wow! Yeah. Good choice. And I, Rick. I just always sing Goldfinger as Shirley Bassey when I'm, <laughs> when I see a James Bond thing. So it's got to be that. Incredible. Does she also do Diamonds Are Forever? Because I sing that sometimes too. Is it Shirley Diamond. Bassey? Did she come back for right. Diamonds Are Forever? Someone will have to check that for me. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know who sang that song. That's a good one. I was waffling between. Wait, wait. Oh, so ahead. no, you got also. There's also another which is "A View to Kill" by uh, Duran Duran. Yeah, classic. It is a great song. <laughs> oh wait, no, I absolutely hate that one. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot. Uh, where do you stand on Duran Duran in general? You don't want me to start, man. So I, if if you've ever heard the band Japan then you know that Duran Duran is simply a copy of a much more interesting and complex band Uh-oh. from a few years before. David Sylvain and uh, what was his name? The bass player, Nick Karn. I think the drummer, oh, I'm trying to remember. Like David Sylvain played with Robert Fripp, did stuff like that. The drummer was really a much more swingy than one of the Taylors, whichever Taylor played the drums in Duran Duran. But yeah, yeah, definitely check out Japan. Um, they're kind of the uh, template for 
Duran Duran, especially Nick Rhodes, looks like I think just completely copped his look from David Sylvain. That was the uh, Duran Duran was the first live show I ever went to. Rosemont Horizon. We sat in the very back <laughs> to watch them. So now I feel like I could have seen Japan at a much closer distance. I don't know if they ever toured. I'm trying to think if they toured the U.S. and it would have been. If they did, it would have been. Yeah, it would have been a smaller place. They broke up in like 81 or 82. And I, I listened to Japan a few months ago. Again, a more in-depth listen, just to make sure I wasn't incorrect. But I'm definitely correct about that. And it's kind of common <laughs> knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, I'll listen to Japan. I was thinking Spy Who Loved Me or Live and Let Die. Bleh. I think I said <laughs> Don't like Live and Let Die. <laughs> it's a great song. I just I don't know if it's a good James Bond song. I thought you might say that. So here was here was my argument. Um, I, thought, I thought you were going to bring uh, Paul McCartney into the mix here. So by the Paul way, McCartney. I happen to have Paul McCartney with me right here, <laughs> continuing on my theme of enjoying Annie Hall jokes. No, it's got that uh, the International Chord of Mystery in it, which is the minor major seventh, <laughs> which you know I think is necessary for every James Bond theme song. Mm. Of course, Paul McCartney being a music nerd knew to put that in there. It's got the kinetic energy of the Vic Flick guitar riff in many points of the song. You know, Vic Flick did the dun 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 And so it's got that sort of racy part. Dun, 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 dun. And then it's got sort of that signature goofy Paul McCartney part that's got, so you know, like how he does hands across the water or mm-hmm. Admiral Halsey, you know, he's always got to throw some sort of hymn singing through a flugelhorn or something in it. And I <laughs> think he's, he's got that, you know, what does it matter to you? You know, that whole middle eight. Segment. He needs, he always has to have a middle eight. Is that what that's called? A middle eight? That's what I've heard him call it. And George Martin was really impressed because that was one of his descriptions. I feel like I've talked about this on this show is of, of the, Beatles songwriting progress is that they, they had middle eights. Like they didn't just repeat a verse and chorus. They very quickly started adding a bridge. I don't think we have talked about it. Maybe you and I have talked about it. I think so. Song yeah. structure. Yes. And I also picked it because Jim, I thought you might pick it because Yafikoto. You're a big Yafikoto fan and he's in Love and Let Die. Oh yeah. Does yeah. he plan the song? He doesn't. No. <laughs> okay. <he> doesn't plan <laughs> the song. Oddly enough, I've with my younger son have watched three of the four Daniel Craig Bond movies recently. And uh, the theme, oh, what was it? Yeah, Jack White and Adele or something. Well, Adele does one of them. Jack White does the other. (laughs) Well, who does he sing with? No, no, Jack White sings with someone else, though. Sings, does a duet, but it's not Adele. Before Skyfall, you know, the one that ripped off all the Batman movies? Um, (laughs) You know, where the Joker is now... Got a, a Latin accent and yeah, yeah, yeah. They still burn down Wayne Manor and there's still a. Batmobile. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I didn't even think of that. It is a lot like a Batman movie. Oh no, it is a Batman movie. It's, <laughs> it's basically the you know that Heath Ledger Joker Batman movie. They just yeah, basically yeah. copied that onto. Oh. They just drove James Bond and all over it. It's the same movie. I um, I just watched it and, and I have to yeah with Javier Bardem right? No right. What's his name? Yeah. And yep. then is is the Joker. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, ugh. I'll have to watch it again. Speaking of like ripping stuff off, like 
I just was watching uh, old, you know, Danger Man episodes again. That Pete, uh, Patrick McGowan TV show. It's before he did The Prisoner, and it's like from 1960. And well, I, yeah, Secret I, Agent Man was it was called the, in the, the U.S. Yeah, right, and they in, did that. Yeah, they use yeah. The, that was the theme, the Secret Agent Man song, but um, much better than any Bond theme. Yeah, but well, the the original, the Danger Man theme is great. It's better, you know. It's not. There's no singing. It's just dangerous. Mm. It's just dun, dun, dun. But anyway, the intro with Patrick McGoo and he's walking out of this building, and it's a voiceover of him explaining who he is, and he says, "My name is Drake, John Drake." You know, and <laughs> they totally lifted that. It's Bond, James Bond, and he's driving. Not always, but he has a uh, like an Aston Martin. He's driving around in. And it's like, it was obvious. I think it was before the, I don't, if that stuff is in the books, I don't think it is like the Bond, James Bond. Maybe it is. Maybe it's from the books, but I probably is. James Bond movie came after the Danger Man show. So is that true? I think so. Maybe not. It's like 1960. So when is the first James Bond? 62, I think. Yeah. one's pretty old. Is it, oh, you said 62? That's when Dr. No? I think yeah. so. Yeah, that sounds right. So I think it, yeah. And I think Danger Man started in 1960. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to have to, yeah, do a deep investigation of that. <laughs> I thought Daniel Craig was okay, but then, you know, my son and I are now just, whenever he says something, we just say, <laughs> it is kind of like a little, little Sylvester Stallone, Daniel Craig's. <laughs> delivery in these movies or like Marlon Brando, so, I guess it, but it's more like a, like what people criticize Marlon Brando for, which I never thought. I never thought Marlon Brando was mumbly, but Daniel Craig seems really mumbly. <laughs> I could be just going deaf though, too. <laughs> I can't hear. I, I don't like this James Bond. I can't hear him. He mumbles. <laughs> I don't know who you're criticizing. Sylvester Stallone is awesome. You got Marlon Brando is awesome. Uh, Marlon Brando is supposed to be the best actor of all time. Well, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying is it's like people would criticize Marlon Brando for being mumbly, right? That was the thing about him originally was is that he he didn't enunciate like like an old school, you know, actor did. Daniel Craig actually seems like he's just kind of mush-mouthed. Well, he's the brooding Bond, right? He's yeah. the, he's the crybaby Bond is what I think <laughs> they call him. He's always like... Well, it does seem like he doesn't want to be there, which I've heard, right? He doesn't really (laughs) enjoy making, you know, whatever, how much $5 million of film or whatever he makes. He's he's not... They gave him a a healthy sum for this one. Right. (laughs) And suddenly he was really happy to be back. Like, you're right. He was like, totally like, I'll never do another Bond again. And then suddenly they cut him an enormous check and he was like, I was just kidding. (laughs) I mean, li- literally, his retraction of that statement is is like so poor. It should just been like, you know, every man is his price. They na- they nailed it. I I wanted to ask you both. You're both brothers in a band. Do you think there's something special about being in a band with your brother? Yes. Mm coming on the heels of, of uh, the loss of one of the greatest brother bands in the history of brother bands. Someone from the Kinks died? No, uh, well, no. I don't know. I'm sure someone has at some point. I, mean, I don't keep tabs on the Kinks. Uh, but the, as, you, as you both know, Van All Halen right. 
conversations over. You don't keep you don't keep tabs on the kinks. Well, I don't I don't even like the way you said that. <laughs> I listen to them. I don't just I don't, I'm not aware of whether or not they're still alive. Dismissive. <laughs> they don't put that kind of stuff in the news. They don't they don't publish things about people that nobody really care about in the news. <laughs> so I wouldn't know how to follow their. That actually made me like honestly a little angry when you said that. Had like a little momentary <laughs> flare. I, I love the Kings. I'm just trying to antagonize you, so I'll stop it. I apologize. I'll put that in the next. I apologize segment. <laughs> kings are amazing. My wife turned me on to the. I, I, Tom turned me on the Kings way back when, but then my wife made me do an extra dose. So there's like for a couple of years, all I listened to were like the Kinks and T Rex. It was it was a delightful couple of years. I would argue that they wrote better songs for longer than the Rolling Stones. Oh, yeah. I'd agree with that. I think there's a kink song from 1989 that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas the last Rolling Stones song that's good is Undercover of the Night, which I don't think a lot of people agree with me on that. But I like that song. Yeah, it's a great song. It's also a Sly and Robbie song that uh, Mick and Keith just sang and played over. What about Miss You? When did Miss You come out? I like that song. (laughs) Do you really? Yeah, I like Miss You. It's got a cool groove. I mean, it's a disco song, but I don't have any issues with it. Yeah, I don't like that song. <laughs> <laughs> There's only like a five or six Stones records I like, and they're all like clustered together. There's like Black yeah. and Blue, Goat's Head Soup. Even Some Girls is kind of patchy. I, um, I definitely like Some Girls better than Goat's Head Soup. Uh, what's Fool to Cry On? That's Black and Blue. Uh, Let It Bleed. Oh, what's the the French Villa one, the double album? Oh, the one Exile that nobody. On Street? Yeah, no one's heard that one. <laughs> <laughs> no hipster has ever heard. No hipster uh, bar jukebox has Exile Main Street. I can talk about another instance that got me visibly angry. I almost kicked the television. Was uh, what's Jimmy Fallon was interviewing Keith Richards, and it was for the reissue of Exile on Main Street whenever that happened, that was like 10 years ago, right? And Jimmy Fallon asked Keith Richards, what's his favorite Stones record? And Keith Richards said, between the buttons. And then, you know what Jimmy Fallon said? He said, but Exile on Main Street's pretty good too, right? And then that was it. It was like, I've never heard, I've heard like 3 million interviews about freaking Exile on Main Street and here's a moment where Keith Richards actually talks about Between the Buttons, which I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk in depth about that record, right? And I love that record. And moron Jimmy Fallon just like sticks with it. It's like, no, we're here to promote. Like the interviewer is like keeping Keith Richards in line. No, we're here to promote Exile on Main Street, you know, the 40th anniversary or whatever, 30th, whatever it was. And we're not going to talk about Between the Buttons. I got so mad. I still hold a grudge. I don't. I Every time I see Jimmy Fallon, I think about that. Sorry. That, I no, get that really emotional atrocity. about this I mean, stuff. I, I know you guys don't watch a lot of sports, but one of the most infuriating things in sports is they'll come up there. There was actually a famous interview where a guy had just won like a, a big football game and they ran up to him. And he was the reason why they won. He like, I forget what it was. He intercepted a football or tapped the ball away and it ended the game. And they ran up to him with the microphone and he was like, and they're like, how do you feel right now? He's like, I feel great. You know, 
you know, forget these guys. We beat them. You know, God, just, I'm so, like, he was so excited. He's like, we won. We won. And we were the best. We're better than them. And we beat them. And we won. It was like the very rare, genuine, emotional <laughs> moment in sports interview history. And then what happened is everybody in the media came down on this guy. Like, oh, my God, where is your sportsmanship? Right, when exactly. it's like, so what they really wanted him to say was, Hey, these guys played a great game today. They gave us their all. We got lucky, you know. Yeah. Uh, it was you know, we just, just were, start you know, day. We just there at the right yeah. time. It's like, yeah. What do you want? Do you want this? Like, I was like, no, I love that. That's great. He he went for it, and then you know they 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 basically beat him down for, for telling the truth. And just like yeah. this, uh, being, they derailed Keith Richards talking about yeah between the being buttons. a competitive monster. It's like at least be honest. <laughs> That you have to be a competitive monster to operate on that level professionally. Well, we pay the I mean, millions saying, of dollars to be gladiators. You exactly. Know, <laughs> and run into each other. Like, and then we're like, hey, as soon as, as the second you're done doing that, like running into each other at super high speed and then being super glorified by 60,000 people screaming how great you are, I need you to calm down and I need you to say something respectful about the person that we just asked you to clobber. <laughs> you need to be humble. Yeah. So, so we're gonna cool we're gonna down. take a pump and inflate your head a hundred times its normal size, and then we want you to fit your head through the door. <laughs> so okay, so we won't memorialize Van Halen, but my question is: No, no, it's fine. We can talk about Van Halen. Sorry, is, I, it, I, I'm, I'm derailing everything here. Well, I did want to get to the. Like, I don't have the experience of being. I've, I've been in bands with friends my whole life. It's pretty much been the only thing, and it's. I very rarely. I don't think I've ever been in a band with somebody for a professional reason. Um, and so it's always been a special friendship bond. But is it? Is there something special about playing with your brother in a band? Or is it like just having another great band member that you click with? Hmm. <laughs> I, th I think it's both, probably. I mean, I, I think part of it is compatibility, but I also know that they're <laughs> like the Kinks, for instance. There's not a lot of compatibility there. There's been occasional stabbings. <laughs> <laughs> or Oasis, those guys always fight. Yeah, or Oasis. So right. I, I don't think the compatibility thing always works out. But maybe that's meat just puppets. Meat puppets. Along. Yeah, they, they Although, yeah, what's his name? The brother quit for a while, right? The bass player quit. He went to jail. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's true too. But he quit before he went to jail, right? I feel like. But yeah, yeah. I, I, I think. I guess. Yeah. You just don't hear about the brother bands where no one's trying to murder each other, or it's because money becomes involved, right? So once you're rich, even if you're family, that's a problem, right? Which so, yeah, we we obviously we never had. We that had problem. that. That never had that issue. <laughs> So that was good. Yeah. yeah, you guys made money doing what you did. Yeah, but not sure. not money to the point where we would try to stab each other. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's what I was looking forward to. I never got that exciting. <laughs> There's still time. It was, yeah, it was actually pretty boring being in a band with your brother. <laughs> no, it's no, it was, it's fun. I don't know. So, yeah, it's a heavy questions. This is a ve another very special episode of Lost and Found. <laughs> what I always say is that uh, that it's it's entirely that Jim is is a wonderful person and that makes is a very easygoing person. So it's it's it worked out very well, but through no fault of my own. Right? <laughs> it's, uh, it's more more about uh, Jim just being a uh, pretty level-headed person. So that's yeah, no, it's true. 
So that's what I always say. Uh-huh. Jim, did you like being in a band with Rick? Sure. Your older brother? That was, that was fine. <laughs> <laughs> you're in two bands, one with your brother and your sister-in-law, and the other band, you're with uh, longtime friends. Which band do you prefer being in? <laughs> Mm. Let's see. <laughs> Sorry, let me rephrase the question. Which band do you like the band members better in? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could just combine the two bands together and we just be all one big band. That would be my dream. See, now <laughs> you should be an NFL football player because that's exactly. the answer that they would want you to give in the interview. <laughs> That's why Jim's a great band member. He's very diplomatic and sarcastic, sarcastically diplomatic. It's like he's, if you force him into a corner, he's going to give you a scenario that's untenable and ridiculous. <laughs> We've said it before. Jim is, Jim is above humans on the, on the evolutionary uh, scale. I, yeah, I have gills. I've adapted. Um, one observation I made about Eddie Van Halen is I, I was trying to say he was the greatest rhythm guitarist of all time, but I actually think he's one of the greatest percussive guitarists of mm. all time. And I would categorize a percussive guitarist as someone who plays a guitar like a percussive instrument and or piano. Um, we have a friend named Matt, uh, <laughs> which names about <coughs> half a billion human beings alive today. Uh, but also like he, half he half of your friends, right, are named Matt, I yeah. feel like. <laughs> yes. Like and all of their wives are named Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> but I was I had was thought of a list of some percussive guitarists. I thought I'd run it by you guys and see see what your reflections are. Whether or not A, you agree they're a percussive guitarist, and B, if you think that they were any good. I'm I'm really starting to feel inadequate here because you've done a lot of preparation for this episode and I personally was sitting upstairs working and my wife said, do you want to eat dinner before your thing tonight? And I was like, oh, yeah, I have a thing tonight. <laughs> I, I feel really bad. I didn't prepare at all. I kind of, it was, as you could tell by me eating while we were starting the episode. Look, after my brother-in-law came on here and clearly waylaid my contributions to this podcast, I figured I'd better try and put a little bit more effort in this to make a case here. <laughs> All right, so I don't have to do any more work, though, right? Just right, to clarify. Yeah. Okay. You, you provide plenty of, of educated opinions on the show. I don't have any educated opinions. And Jim does all that esoteric, has all that esoteric information just locked away in his brain. We just, it's up to you and I to, to sort of pick it out of there. So mm-hmm. that, that's sort of your job. Educator, <laughs> lock picker. <laughs> I'm going to put that on my business card. <laughs> Bucky Pope. Oh. Percussive guitarist. Yes or no? Is he any good? Yes or no? <laughs> oh, I love him. Yeah. Amazing. That was one of the best shows I think I saw was uh, Tar Babies. I don't think I had the record yet. I might have had the record, but seeing them live, it was like impressive. Fried, fried milk. Era. Fried milk. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So they came to Columbia once and I had a horrible cold and couldn't make it to go see them. Oh. And then I took a I took cold medicine <clears throat> and about 20 minutes before they went on my fever broke. It was their band Mud Honey and oh I can't remember what the third band was, but it was like just an incredible bill. 
And yeah, I missed sounds it. like I it. sat wow. in my dorm room. Oh. And everybody says he was the best, like to see live, like the. So I, I thought that Eddie Van Halen might have been the best percussive guitarist, but I'm trying. I'm thinking that Bucky Pope might have been the best because people describe him as like un, unreal. Like you've never seen somebody play guitar that way. Is that true? I just remember being really good, and that's why the Red Hat Chili Peppers always put me in a rage because <laughs> there were there were multiple bands that were better at the punk funk thing. Like and and to be have the Red Hot Chili Peppers trail through my musical life for thirty years when there were so many more talented and better musicians working in that corner of punk funk. I it, it, I yeah. So yeah, I mean it was it was thirty thirty five years ago when I saw Tar Babies, but it was it definitely was profound. One of those, yeah, like, so when people talk about seeing Jimi Hendrix play or just seeing a really good guitar player play. I, I saw Richard Thompson play a few years ago, and that that uh, was pretty amazing, too. And so, yeah, he definitely is up there with one of those people where you, if you're in the room and in a smaller venue, lucky enough to be in a smaller venue watching them play, it's 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 amazing. Even though Richard Thompson, I was getting a little like, oh, he's got he's got 10 tricks and he does them all the time, which sounds awful for me to say, considering my guitar playing pales in comparison infinitely to Richard Thompson. But it was after a while, it's just because I was older and more analytical. Um, but yeah. I'd argue there's some things on shoot out the lights, some guitar parts that are percussive that feel like he's playing a piano versus a guitar. There's some real sort of rhythmic, I don't know what you'd call it. Yeah, he's he's rhythmic, but I wouldn't call him percussive, Richard Thompson. Good call. This right, this next definition, is, this percussive thing is throwing me off a bit. I, I you know, it's just good guitar players, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let me guess. Andy Gill. Is that who you're going to say? No. I was not. Who's okay. who's Andy Gill? <laughs> uh, I, now I know I'm going to be trying to asking. Just I'm not going to put on airs. I'm not going to pretend. <laughs> Never mind. Just go on. Ask your questions. <laughs> Who is Andy Gill? I don't. I don't even want to talk to you about it. All Just right. go on. <laughs> She's gonna kick the screen. Uh, the former drummer of Open Wound, who switched to guitar. <laughs> oh, Jay Maskus. Okay. <laughs> you consider well, him. Yeah. A- so Eddie, Eddie Van Halen was a drummer before he was a guitar player, right? Alex Correct. and Eddie switched, right? So, so are you? Yeah, you're trying to find some kind of connection. But Jay Maskus to me doesn't sound like a drummer playing guitar. But Jim, maybe you had a you had a comment before I interrupted. No, no. You know, like and there's just all that. But then a lot of that kind of stuff is all that's kind of bass too. It's really hard to distinguish which one of them is playing the percussive chords. Right. That was so much of it was Lou playing bass chords too. Yeah, guitar on the bass. Dinosaur sound was yeah. It's basically two guitar players. Yeah. Except one of them's playing bass. Well that we went and saw them and I was like, I always thought there were two guitar tracks that he sort of backtracked himself. And then you go and it's Lou playing like all those full chords. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. How about Robert Smith playing the guitar like a steel drum or a marimba? I, I just don't have a good feel for Robert Smith, the guitarist. I know he played guitar on almost everything, right? I mean, that's... And people say he's he's really a great, subtle guitar player, but I never focused on him. 
I never saw them live, have never seen them live, and never focused on his guitar playing as more as a songwriter. So he's a great guitarist. He's a great rhythm guitarist too. He's in fact Jay yeah, Mason sure. uh, cites him as one of his his influences. Oh, yeah, Joe Walsh. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, Joe Walsh is yeah. Joe Walsh is a great rhythm guitar player. Yeah, sure. Jim, love, love Joe Walsh. You've studied Joe, Jim. <laughs> I hear it in a lot of your songs, actually. I, I, I remember when you bought that James Gang record, and then after that, I heard a lot of James Gang in your band. <laughs> a lot of James Gang yeah, influence. I guess. Yeah, I like the early, yeah, his early stuff was, yeah, he's a great guitar player. and Yeah, interesting rhythm, like you said. Definitely had an uh, original style i just did a deep jewel oddly a, a joel walsh deep dive a while ago and there's <laughs> there's an amazing song it's on one of his early solo records or the barnstorm what i don't know but it's like him he does like some scat singing at the beginning i i, I sampled I it i and i'm like i've gotta i've gotta do this at some point it's like him you just gotta I, i'll find it uh it's like him he starts out scat singing and then it, it's just him screaming like you can hear him in the the vocal booth and then the song starts but it's it's like the most amazing moment where he's just basically shredding his his vocal cords like obviously just losing his mind in the in a good way but in in the vocal booth is amazing <laughs> He's he's responsible for Pete Townsend's guitar tone on all basically every Who record from Who's Next to the last you know a, the '80s Who records. That's another person I got mad at was Kenny Jones. I've, I've been listening to a lot of the Faces. It's just I understand why Kenny Jones was the drummer in the Who after Keith Moon, but because they they all knew each other and were from the same you know scene basically. But it's just like that's another horrible misstep. Kenny Jones, like I'm I'm like sitting there watching Kenny Jones play with the Faces, and then trying to understand what went wrong when I'm watching like Lou live Who stuff from 1981 or 82. But I I went off on a tangent. Joe Walsh uh, bought. <laughs> oh a no, guitar. wait, that's a great tangent. I want to follow that tangent. <laughs> okay. I think the answer is because you can't have to have the Who without. Keith Moon. And actually, yeah. uh, now that I think about it, I think Townsend was a percussive guitarist. And oh, yeah. I think that the lead player, and you've said this before, Rick, this is cliche, but the lead player is the bass player. Uh, oh, the other thing about a percussive guitarist or maybe a rhythmic guitarist is that there are bands where the bass player locks in with the drummer, and that's sort of a common thing. But I think that there are bands where the rhythm guitarist locks in with the drummer. And then the bass player goes off and does whatever he wants. That's why I had D. Boone on my list as well. I, I don't think Townsend <laughs> could survive without Keith Moon. I think the two of them were one unit, and I think you you unplug that half of the unit. And he just couldn't couldn't do it. I think there's some interesting stuff. He you know the drum the the rhythm section of Big Country before they you know kind of got were in Big Country were on the solo Pete Townsend stuff. They're yeah they're good. The that yeah, first that bass player yeah it's amazing. Yeah, that first Pete Townsend solo record or Empty Glass some of some of the stuff. Those there. are great records, but they're not Who records. No, they're not. But yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah. No, it, 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 the it's just yeah. Kenny Jones. Yeah, and he made sense for what Pete Townsend was trying to do. Actually, I just read a thing. About, not not to go. We could just do a classic rock. Uh, yeah. Podcast. Um, Peter Frampton getting a call from Pete Townsend, where Peter Frampton was right at his downward thing. You know, he had done Sgt. Pepper's the the movie, right? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> And the the new the record after the live album tanked and all that kind of stuff and he was 
at the bottom. Then Pete Townsend called him up and said, I'm going to just be doing studio work with The Who from now on. I want you to play guitar with them live. (laughs) (laughs) And Peter Frampton was like, that's insane. (laughs) And then, but he was also like, but... I have nothing going on. My career's over, basically. I, 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 I might do it. And then Peter Frampton was like, you need to talk to the band. And then Pete was like, okay, I'll do that. And then he didn't hear from Pete Townsend for like a month and then finally called him back and Pete was like, oh, I'm sorry, no. <laughs> it's not happening. I was crazy it was like, when I called yeah, him. Don't yeah, worry exactly. About and that's, that's what Peter Frampton was saying. Was like he had no idea what was going on in Pete Townsend's mind, but it was like he didn't realize that Pete Townsend had just, you know, thrown a lifeline to Peter Frampton and then ignored him. I think Peter Frampton could have, you know, he's a talented guy. He probably could have replaced The Who and then you get Billy Squire to replace Led Zeppelin. And then you've got (laughs) the two greatest rock bands just still out there today, just in one man form. (laughs) Do we think uh, D. Boone was a, a, a rhythmic percussive guitarist or was he a lead guitarist? Kind of did both. Yeah. Yeah, he did crazy solos and he was some yeah i never got to see live but rick got to oh. see him live talking yeah. about amazing guitarist live which yeah. i've heard but yeah he was amazing and and that's the thing is you know mike watt would go off i think what we're talking about here is when you have a it's a power trio setup and so when you're a guitar player in a power trio regardless of whether or not they have a lead singer or not right so <laughs> That's, that's right. Yeah, a little dismissive. A power trio. Yeah, the Chili Peppers are a power trio. It's dismissive know, it's, of lead singers, but it's it's that that idea of yeah, the guitar player having to cover both bases. So you have to be a, a good rhythm guitarist if you're going to play in a three piece rock band with vocals. Let's move on to what we've watched, Rick. What have you watched? I just while while we were talking about this, I was watching Erga Music War, just watching over and over again. Um, Gang of Four with one of the greatest guitar Andy players Gill. Andy ever. Gill's in Gang of Four. <laughs> Playing. Have you guys heard of that? That, that uh, thing where he's strumming the guitar manically, but then he only hits the string like once every yeah. measure. Yeah. And so he's like strumming at like... Going, ding, ding. <laughs> and just like... Uh, ding. <laughs> so in terms of percussive guitarists, I think Andy Gill is probably the most percussive, I would say. And actually, what's unfair is that Wilco Johnson, so who was in um, Dr. Feelgood, which was this kind of 1975, right before punk hit, pub rock band, but Wilco Johnson was the guitar player in that. You just need to watch a video. Go on YouTube and watch Oh yeah, yeah. Um, Wilco Johnson, because he, he left almost immediately after the band you know, kind of hit in England. You watch Wilco Johnson, and then you realize, oh, okay, everything Paul Weller's doing in the jam, or at least early on, is is very like stabby Wilco Johnsony. And then you realize, oh yeah, that's probably he had a huge influence on Andy Gill too. I don't, I don't think people realize. Well, some some people, people who actually like you know that era of music and like you know know about Gang of Four and Andy Gill and things like that. They they know about Wilco Johnson, but um. <laughs> Sorry, I'm Why trying. Why trying, I'm trying so hard to be mean to you, and it's not working. Um, <laughs> You're throwing daggers, and I'm just like yeah. they're just going straight through me. You would really like. You would really like that that first Doctor Feelgood record and Wilco Johnson. And I think a lot of what people consider post punk kind of guitar playing 
that percussive stabby kind of sound is can be directly traced back to Wilco Johnson. His sound is just based on the way he hit the guitar with his hand and then doing like hyper blues rock, you know, rock and roll, amped up, minimalist pub rock. Wilco Johnson was on Game of Thrones, Chris. You watched Game of Thrones, right? <laughs> was he really on Game of Thrones? Yes. He's like, he kind of looks like G.E. Smith if he was really skinny and had a shaved head. Okay. In my defense, it's not like I had listened to these bands and was telling you guys they were terrible. You should feel like you're sort of helping me along, helping educate yeah, no. me. I, I've... I, you know, you will find out today. I watched several of the things that you encouraged me to watch and I enjoyed them just because I didn't have a cool older brother who turned me on to <laughs> Gang of Four and the Jam. I mean, I will, I'll do it now. I'll get to and it. I promise. You're just a proxy for my anger at the world, Chris. You're not. It's, <laughs> well, that, I've you said should that before know. on the show. Yeah, I'm the audience, should, I'm the audience yeah. surrogate. <laughs> you should, everyone should know Wilco Johnson and Andy Gill. You know, that's, that's my world and I'm angry that it's not everyone else's world the sad thing is is that of our listeners probably a majority percentage of them do so i'm probably behind the rest of them so i'll apologize to our listeners who actually have been growing at a nice pace and so i want to say thank you for listening to the show and i promise i'll do better <laughs> and for the listeners sake chris i hope you edit down a lot of what i've been saying <laughs> i always do <laughs> i know i know so before we took both my kids to see Skyfall, they had never seen a Bond film. So we made them watch every Bond film in order, and they loved Dr. No. They loved all the espionage. They loved like you know licking the hair and mm. putting in the closet door to see if somebody had come into the room or when he sits right. in the chair with his gun, when he makes up his bed and the guy comes in and shoots his bed and then he... Like they loved all that little, like even the get, because there aren't a lot of gadgets in that movie, I don't think. Right. It's it's like the original kind of spy stuff. Yeah. Right. Before right. they had to start making up crazy stuff to keep people interested. Underneath the mango tree goes through that and three blind mice are all through that. And it's all sort of Cubano, I think the, the music score is. And, and they, you know, they love that. They love old, old timey music. So they fell in love with those old films. Your boys may not want to watch them, but I bet you if you made them watch them, they're pretty, yeah, I'll pretty have enjoy to them. Force it. Because that's, you know, every young man should watch James Bond to get an idea of how to be a man. Right. <laughs> my 21st daughter, century. <laughs> my daughter took exception to the rape scenes um, <laughs> where Bond basically uh, had sex with a woman against her will. And then, of course, she enjoyed it. Um, yeah. My daughter didn't think that was very realistic. <laughs> yeah, or <laughs> appropriate. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's. There's something to be said for progress and, yeah, leaving older films behind sometimes. Uh, what else? Oh, being there. Watched being there. Ooh, still, still great. Um, Star Trek Two. <laughs> Watch that. Still, still good. That's a good I, film. Oh, is that Rathacon? Yeah, Rathacon. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry, Rathacon. Uh, you know, Ricardo Montalban just basically going for it. That's that's what I got out of it. This I've watched it so many times over, you know, what, 40 years right now? It's almost 40 years old. Um, but just as an older man realizing that that's Ricardo Montalban going for everything, like basically saying, this is my, my chance again. It's like after Fantasy Island and everything like that, I'm going to show that I can outact everybody and he does he does he does a better william shatner than william shatner you know <laughs> and then he gets those car commercials after that and yeah <laughs> that's basically <laughs> his career. Car. fantasy island wrath of Khan, 
Corinthian leather. I watched the documentary about Cream magazine. It was a while ago, but I really enjoyed that. Ooh, um, that sounds good. Yeah, it's really good. I was able to watch it through my local th- art theater. They had online screenings, you know, where I, th- I think, I don't know if you <laughs> if they get any money when you buy a ticket, but it was through them. I hope they do. But yeah, just, just the history of, of Detroit rock and roll kind of, but then how that magazine was part of it. Just the short period of time and craziness and a good rock and roll documentary without, well, it had bands in it, but it was, it was more about journalism, you know, Lester Bangs and... So you had the kind of Stooges, MC5 and Alice Cooper. I'd forgotten that Alice Cooper started out in Detroit and then moved to LA or something. Right. I, I thought, so Stooges were Detroit, they weren't Ohio. Why, why do I think they're Ohio? Maybe that famous well, footage of them playing live is at some yeah, county there's, there's the, somewhere. <clears throat> it's it's a TV. It's like like on TV. They have them on TV, like, like a local television station showing this festival and and it's like a straight-laced reporter and then like Iggy Pop is or Iggy the singer is rubbing peanut butter on himself and it's that famous <laughs> shot of him like pointing and the audience is like passing him around like he's standing on the audience's hands it's that all those kind of images are from yeah some local television station went to see the festival and and caught the Stooges who were not the headliner in, by any means right and it's like Thank God that that happened because that that footage, well, it's in every Stooges documentary and every yeah Detroit documentary is because that lucky enough that they got on local television in Ohio. That's my exact impression of I'm like I'm so glad somebody decided to film this or somebody thought this was the right thing to film because clearly it wasn't, and I'm so <laughs> glad they did it. Like it, it was not for whoever they were filming it for. It's like the kids, kids watching that night are like, why didn't they, like, why aren't they talking about Grand Funk Railroad? You know, they're like really upset. And it's like, why are they showing this band? Even Which still. is another, yeah, another Michigan band, right? So not to dismiss Grand Funk Railroad completely, but it's, again, it's like, why is that band? Why was Grand Funk, not that they're famous now, but Grand Funk Railroad was the band from that area that became the huge hit makers, not the Stooges or the MC5. I watched that uh, Knowing movie with uh, Nicolas oh. Cage that was mentioned. Um, I just saw it on my list. I'm like, shit, I forgot to watch Knowing and Next. <laughs> I didn't watch Next. So yeah, Knowing, that was interesting. It has got, so it's, the best part of it is is the destruction stuff. So it's got all that great, you know, they're, they're these violent, explosive or violent events that happen. Like a train, what is it? A train plowing through a, train station or something, you know, just like a huge train disaster, things like that. And it's more recent enough where the digital is really great. And Mm. so that's, that's what I enjoyed. It was just like the director got some money, you know, and used it to his full potential. And then of course destroyed his career because nobody saw the movie knowing (laughs) Gemini man. (laughs) So my younger son wanted to watch. It's the, the Will Smith movie, Will Smith, Ang Lee directed by Ang Lee. It's another Ang Lee movie that was shot at a high frame rate. When it was projected in the theaters, they were projecting it at 60 frames per second. Some places, maybe even 120. And just hearing about it, I was like, why didn't I know about this? I would have gone to see this awful movie <laughs> if I had known. Um, but there are just a few moments like where, where like the younger kid, my younger son was saying, wow, ooh, that shot looks really weird. I'm like, that's the high frame rate. But 
the action sequences look really good because they're at that high frame rate. And also you're streaming it so you don't get necessarily the 60 frames per second. But it's And then it was confusing to my son because it's a clone movie. You know, Will Smith is beating up the CGI version, younger version of himself. Yeah, he was confused. Like why, how come when he like hurts him or shoots him, how come that doesn't hurt him? Because he thought it was a time travel thing. He thought that's a great that point. If he was I would have thought that beating too. Up, like if, if yeah. he puts a hole in his leg, then Will Smith should have <laughs> right. a bruise there. Have a hole in his yeah, yeah exactly right, a, a scar. And it's like, no, this isn't time travel. It's just clones. And it's like, <laughs> like, so even just the idea of fighting with your clone and everything like that is an antiquated idea. It's like like the audience today wants their time travel. <laughs> yes, you they know? do. They want their they're, 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 if they see two people, a younger version of someone fighting with themselves, they're, they're assuming there's some kind of time paradox going on. Hey, but it was a terrible uh, film, Gemini Man. It, yeah, yeah, it was terrible. It, it, it was truly terrible. And so I feel bad for Ang Lee, but I'm starting to think that, oh, maybe he's, maybe he's not that great of a director. Did you see Bad Hulk? Because Bad Hulk sucked. Yeah, I saw Bad Hulk. I saw, um, what's the other one he did? Oh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was fantastic. Well, yeah, that was that's great. Yeah, he also went to the University of Illinois. You know, that's he's he he oh, he's like a. I don't know that. Yeah, he was in the theater department. I don't think he had a great time there, but one of those free services on my the robot box that came with my internet had all a lot of Alfred Hitchcock stuff. So I rewatched Rear Window, which is still okay. There's there's obvious creepy stuff in it, but. Um, <laughs> still a great movie and then i watched the trouble with harry which is from like 1955 it's a hitchcock film it's shirley mclean's first movie speaking of warren Beatty, <laughs> shirley mclean is warren Beatty's brother yep. no sister <laughs> which is it it's sister it's sister. sister when you're when you're female and you have a sibling yes. that's a male you're someone's sister <laughs> but that's a gorgeous um, movie right the trouble with harry oh. i Oh, yeah, I don't know God. if I, I think I saw that. Maybe I saw it like at the film center or something. I'm trying to think if I actually saw a film version of that sometime in the past 20 well, years or something. And it they did the, I mean, that was the thing in the 80s. They did those re releases, right? That uh, was the thing is Rear Window and Vertigo and Trouble with Harry and Rope and one other, right? Yeah. The man, the remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much, right? Um, the second man who knew too much. They, they were all restored and re-release so maybe you saw it during that or was it even after that yeah i don't yeah, know yeah like even on the tv it was just like and and beaver from leave it to beaver uh what's his name is is like a little kid at the beginning right. finding the body yeah and oh it is it is truly the most beautiful i guess it's technicolor film yeah and i'm jerry sure it's mathers. part of the restoration yeah jerry mathers is in the trouble <laughs> with harry along with shirley mclean and uh the guy from uh, dynasty john uh what's his name he plays an artist. That character is amazing. His his character as the artist is 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 worth it. The rest of the movie is just like, uh, and the character actors are all great. Um, but it's just like the the movie itself is just kind of weird. The plot, it's just weird. It's not as funny as it should be, I guess. I do I do remember there was a lost summer when I was in college. Jim and Jim and I were home together. I think it was just before you all were going on tour. And so Jim and I were kind of left to our own devices for that summer, and it was kind of a lost summer, but I remember watching Leave it to Beaver every day, two episodes a day, and just being absolutely in love with Barbara Billingsley. I'm thinking, <laughs> not only did I want her to be my mother, but I also wanted her to be my lover as well. So Barbara, wow. if you're out there, 
It's like some <laughs> come swaddle me. <laughs> Reminds me of the demented Prince demo that I sent you. It's like some. Oh, that Prince where song the, was the fantasies. Yeah, that was incredible. Get a little. That's, I got to listen to this again. I didn't. I, didn't yeah. I listened to it once or twice. I need to at least listen to it a thousand times. <laughs> I don't know if it's still up. Yeah, that was the thing. Is everyone that had posted about it was like, I can't believe this is still up. There's an under the cherry moon thing happening now, where people are saying under the cherry moon is a good movie. I remember watching mm. it like back when it came out, and was like, I, this is unwatchable. And <laughs> so now. Like people are like, you just don't, you know, you have to put it in context. I'm like, context of what? <laughs> sucked. So I, yeah, I didn't even, I didn't even attempt to watch it. Yeah, you can skip it. One of the best Prince records ever, but the yeah, I like that record. Maybe the worst. Film. Yeah, that's that's weird. Yeah, everybody's talking, especially because of the re-release of uh, Sign of the Times, and it's like Sign of the Times is okay, but yeah, the, I, I like Under the Cherry Moon that record better. Parade. Parade. Yeah, sorry. Come on, songs Rick. from under. Okay. Yes, yeah, know anything about music? <laughs> <laughs> I, a sign of the times. I spent a summer listening to sign of the times. It's a. It's. It is a. I loved it because it, it was a very different. It wasn't a pop record. It was yeah. a melancholy record. Yeah, and I love the 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 lead track. You know, the title track. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, my my copy of Parade, does Parade, like my vinyl copy that I bought the day it came out, does that have the actual name of the record on it? It does. You should read it. You've had it long enough. (laughs) (laughs) I watched Silent Running. I don't know what that is. Silent Running? It's it's a movie with Bruce Dern. It's directed by Douglas... Oh, he's he's the guy who did the special effects for 2001 and did oh, special effects on Trum- Star Wars. Trumbull? Trumbull, yeah. Written by Michael Cimino. Ooh. I think it's Michael Cimino's first script. Wow. It's about uh, Bruce Stern is a environmentalist forest ranger on a spaceship that's got all of Earth's uh, plant life. They're like these terrariums, kind of, or terrariums, what are they called? Yeah, yeah. they are kind of Green, like these greenhouses. Bubbles, greenhouses with, with all of Earth's plants. And he's taking care of it, and he's with three other knuckleheads who are just there, like the guys in uh, in Alien, right, where they're just signed up for five years on the ship. Yeah, they're or workers, something. they're miners, yeah, blue collar, yeah, yeah, yeah blue collar spacemen, right? Right. <laughs> and and then they get the call that the company is not going to finance the ships anymore. They should go home and they should blow up the the greenhouses. <laughs> and 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 this is a movie that I saw when I was a little kid and it it blew my mind. It was like the most amazing mind expanding blowing movie huh. I had ever seen. It has little precursors to R2D2 people who had their their robots that are kind of like boxes that walk on their like just two short legs and they're they're people without any legs, you know, basically people with just a trunk and arms inside these robot costumes. So they're like even more sort of strange than R2-D2, right? This was the thing is it, it had a profound effect on me and then I saw it in college and it ruined the movie for me. Because it's it's oh. it's like a perfect movie for a 10-year-old, right? It like was profound when I saw it and then I watched it in college and I was just like, I shouldn't have watched this again. Does, I should have just was it- kept the feeling I had when I watched it when I was a child. It's got a touching ending. And, and again, my, my younger son, I, basically, I just had him come. He came in and watched the last five or 10 minutes of the movie, which is devastating. 
<laughs> and that's all he needed to see. And so I think it had a had an effect on him. But just it's 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 unfortunate because it is a interesting movie. But it's also maybe evidence that anything associated with Michael Cimino, its success or failure, was not based on him. It was based on other elements like the the whole deer hunter, right? And what is it? Not Tango and Cash, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, right? Is Michael Cimino's first movie. I love that movie. That has a sad yeah. ending. And then I watched, my family made me watch Spider-Man Far From Home the other day. Yeah, great film. I quite liked it. What'd you think? I, I just hate all those movies now. I hate all the Marvel movies. You didn't have the revelation I had that the two best supervillains of all time were the co-stars of Brokeback Mountain, the Ang Lee film? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You're making the connection. Well, I kind of already, I knew that Jake Gyllenhaal was the bad guy. Sorry, spoiler alert, was the bad guy from almost the moment he showed up. So it was just like, yeah. I thought it was great. I, I thought Heath Ledger was uh, probably the second best villain in any superhero film. I, I, I did think it was funny that those two guys came out of that film. You know, that was sort of a 70s film. Brokeback Mountain, beautiful film. I loved it. Ang Lee, one of his best work. And then what happens to two amazing actors like that? Where do their careers go? It's like, uh, they're going to be the Joker and they're going to be Mysterio and they're going to you know, kick the shit out of the roles. But, you know, again, it's not... You would <laughs> yeah. think they'd move on to do like The Godfather or Dog right. Day Afternoon or... But straw yeah, dogs those movies, or something. You know? Yeah, those movies aren't being made. Yeah. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal, what was it, Nightfly? What's what's the movie called where he's the uh, kind of like the updated Ouija cameraman or like he's collecting freelance Los Angeles film video guy and he's super creepy. He reminded me a lot of Travis Bickle. Can't yeah. remember the name of it. Rene Rousseau was in it. Yeah. Um, just weird. Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler, yeah. Kansas City. Food-wise, a city famous for its barbecue. But that's about to change. My name is W. Dave Keith, host of the podcast Taco the Town, and I believe that Kansas City is one of the most underrated, underappreciated, up-and-coming taco towns in the USA. On Taco the Town, we will shine a light on all the amazing tacos Kansas City has to offer. Kansas City is a great taco town filled with a variety of untapped taco stylings and flavors, and on the Taco the Town podcast, we won't stop until we've tasted every taco in the town. No taco table will go unturned. Each episode, we review a new taco Taco joint with a special guest. We share taco memories, discuss taco topics, and put tacos to the test. We check the latest stories in taco news, and no taco is off the table on Taco the Town. If you love tacos, like I do, you're gonna love Taco the Town. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and Google Play. That's Taco the Town. I saw the, uh, well, it's a while ago now, but this documentary called about this band called Halix. Did you hear about this? The Disney it's like band? A Disney, yeah, the Disney band. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have that in my list. Yeah, I saw that. It's just online somewhere. I think it was on YouTube or something. You can just watch. Yeah, this crazy band, in, invented band at Disneyland. It was like they played at uh, the stage at Space Mountain just for the summer. And yeah, it's an interesting story. It's just something that nobody, unless you went to Disneyland that summer, 
you were like 10 years old and went there, it probably doesn't mean anything to, you know, and so it, I'd never heard of this, but it was obvious like they're talking to some people who were, well, only a few, like some kids who they're like, they were kids when they saw them and it was like this amazing thing because it, it, it's a good, con- it's a weird concept. It's like they're kind of just ripping off Star Wars. It's like this weird space band and like the poster for the the rock band looks totally like the Star Wars the classic Star Wars painting, you know, the 77 Star Wars poster with them standing, you know, that, that painting movie poster, the Halix band poster looks just like that. And there's like a big Wookiee guy is the bass player. And there's like a, <laughs> of a course synth- he is <laughs> racist. <laughs> and the synth synth player is like kind of a robot guy. And yeah, it was an interesting story. They, they uh, just created this band and, the weird thing is they, they didn't, how it went as far as it did. Like it was pretty popular at Disneyland, you know, it was just there, they play at night outside Space Mountain. But the concept was that they wanted them to be like a real band. So they, after the summer, they went into a recording studio to cut an album and they, they had plans to like basically release an album, you know, like try and promote them as a real band beyond that summer. But they didn't want to put them out on Disneyland Records because it's like a kid's label. So they wanted a real rock them to be a real rock band so they signed a deal with warner brothers it's really bizarre it's like i kind of felt sorry for the band this band who they they were this weird fake band that who knows what contract they signed with disney you know they they, they're playing this summer and that's like yeah i'll be in this band there's kind of session player just people in la there's like playing got hired not only that but then they get signed to warner brothers and it's like this weird double record label double contract thing and it must you know I, I can't imagine what they would have thought, like if they thought this was really going to go anywhere, or if they were savvy enough to realize this is, you know, this is crazy or, you know, it's not going to, ha- this isn't going to happen. And, and it didn't, nothing happened. It just fell apart. And <laughs> it's like, I think they, everybody at Warner Brothers got fired, you know, it's the classic <laughs> thing where whoever signed them got fired. And, and it turned out, I think they were only interested in the singer, the, the woman who's the lead singer. The singer of the song, Jailbait? That's right. That's what, the, yeah, the song, yeah. There's that whole crazy angle the of that. Yeah. Yeah. Kids song, you have to watch jailbait. the, yeah, yeah, obviously have to watch this documentary. But. Another reason not to have it on Disneyland Records. Right. <laughs> yeah. It seemed, it sounded like that was like, no one had a problem with that at all. They had no intention of putting a record out. I don't think they just wanted to sign her basically and try and get her, her career going or something. But that when you apart and, when you all signed to Warner Brothers, did, when you looked at your contract, did you see Halix at the top just scratched out? <laughs> <laughs> band name above it. No, we didn't have a previous contract with uh, like Six Flags or anything, so it wasn't. <laughs> you mean Marriott's Great America? <laughs> right. You know, it's just this bizarre little story. Someone I think most people have never heard of that, and it was just this weird little summer. This crazy band then i'm sure lots of kids loved saw them you know it was like this weird star wars band and their first time they ever saw a real rock band on stage did they play um, guitar what was the drums, yeah it was like guitar it, keyboard yeah yeah synthesizer and did they play bass. live or was it oh like yeah a backing track oh no it was yeah it was real i think they had some footage but they were yeah they're all real musicians good musicians and they just i think it caught yeah, I'm not sure. I think a few of the people in the band wrote some of the songs and some of, you know, they just kind of picked up songs from other places, but they were just kind of, they were kind of like a real band that they were just kind of all stuck together by the, by Disneyland. As real as the monkeys. Right. And I like the monkeys. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, I've been watching uh, Common Rider. It's K-A-M-E-N. It's like a Japanese 
kids show from 1971 that <laughs> is like on online on I don't know, Shout TV or whatever, Shout Factory. They're just on the, the webpage. You can watch them all for free. It's crazy. I'd never heard of that. And it's this insane little action superhero kids show from the early 70s, all in Japanese with subtitles. And he's like a motorcycle rider who's turned into a cyborg. So his his, alter, his superhero persona is common rider. He turns into this superhero, this kind of bug-like guy. His, his motorcycle turns into a cooler motorcycle. And they just ride around in motorcycles and fight. Basically, every episode is exactly the same. And, you know, it's every week is a different crazy monster. There's this evil corporation called, or whatever, evil organization called Shocker. He's trying to take over the world. They, they, they just create cyborgs. So every week, it's like a different kind of animal, human-animal hybrid thing that they fight, that Kamen Rider has to fight. You know? Is it human size, or do they have to get into a giant robot and take it down? It's always human size. It's just a guy or, or woman with a rubber head on, you know, some kind of crazy head. So, so it's like a co- it's more... Yeah, it's yeah. realistic. Yeah, it's all yeah, it's it's more real. realistic. It's not... not it's real. Not, like, it's yeah, real. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's real. <laughs> There's like a, the cobra, cobra man is the best one. He's like a, just a guy with kind of a cobra head. Well, he's kind of human head, but with a cobra hood kind of behind his head. And then, but his arm, one arm is a cobra, is another cobra. He's got a <laughs> cobra arm with a head, another cobra coming out that he just fires at people, you know, bites people with. That's definitely the best one. And there's like a trilobite man who trilobites are these ancient creatures, which bugged me the episode because... So to speak. It starts off saying he's you know trilobites lived eighteen million years ago and it's a kid show. It's like trilobites lived five hundred million years ago and <laughs> oh, I thought you were about to say trilobites lived five thousand years ago. No, no, it's like way way before they died out like before the dinosaurs. So the trilobite episode, I was looking forward to that, but it was a li- that was that was a little bit of a letdown. The misinformation, <laughs> trilobite misinformation, <laughs> feeding the kids. That would have gone but, right through me too. The trial of, I would have been like, oh, wow, that's a long time ago. That's the kind of thing where I'd be talking to somebody at a party and I'd say, well, you know, trial bites that was like what? 18 million years ago. And then somebody would go oh, 500 million sure. years ago. Oh right? yeah. I'm sure at every party, somebody lightweight would know and then, yeah. dinosaurs, 5,000 look like a lightweight. Trilobites, 15 yeah. million. <laughs> that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're kind of sadistic. Yeah. The, the evil, the, the bad guys, you know, it's pretty, extreme for a kid's show in 1971 i think they kidnap a lot of the kids and they're always tied up like one time they're tied up over like this one guy kid is tied up over this cauldron of like acid and it's like shoe falls in and it's like burns up and he's like ah you know and it's all it's kind of classic you know mustache twirling bad guys like tying a woman to the tracks it's like that it's so melodramatic and kind of it's cartoonish too so it's it's not that bad it's it's just so absurd well i'll watch cobra man I watched the Cobra yeah. Man episode. <laughs> Actually, I think there's two. He comes back. They knew they, they were onto a good thing, so it's like a double episode. And a lot of times, Common Rider will like finally defeat the enemy, the monster. This has happened in like probably at least three or four episodes where he just punches him or kicks him and he goes, the bad guy just goes flying off and then just explodes for no <laughs> logical reason. Just he kicks him so hard, he just crashes into a mountain, just blows up. That's, that's happened several times. That's entertaining nothing not explained at all but some some of these monsters just i don't know if it's common rider just kicks them so hard that they blow up or something I you don't kick know. a trilobite and see if it doesn't explode <laughs> right. it will guaranteed yeah. uh-huh. oh i just saw dawson city 
Frozen Time, oh, which is yeah, a documentary. About that. It's pretty much straight documentary, but a little unusual, but it's long. <laughs> it's like two hours long, and but it's all about this like Dawson City in Canada where there was the gold rush like in the late 1890s like lasted about a year or two and then just went bust. And yeah, Dawson City, you know, all these people show up and then they all disappear. You know, everyone leaves after the gold rush ends. And But in the early era after that, in the early era of films, silent films, Hollywood films, like Dawson City was like the end of the line for the film distributors. They never asked for the films back because it wasn't worth their time or money. All these old silent films just collected and they'd burn or night, whatever nitrate film they'd catch fire and there were several fires and they just became a nuisance and they basically were all chucked into like a landfill and disappear like a building was built over them and they found them in the 70, like 78 or something. They just found all these films and they started restoring them and it's more complex. Yeah, it's like about labor relations and kind of the history of exploitation and everything in like a indigenous people in Canada and stuff. There's all these kind of subtexts about it. It's complex the heart of it is pretty much just these movies and then just text on the screen. It's a bit meandering and it's just like a huge topics to tackle like labor and native people. And it just kind of drifts along. And basically in the early 1900s, it kind of just takes a, a view uh, like of culture at the time. It's a really interesting movie. It made me think of Guy Madden and I looked them up and they know each other. <laughs> They're kind of similar, but Dawson City is definitely more of like a, is a, Typical documentary, not typical, well, but they're more Canadians, though, right? Yeah, they're both Canadian, so they yeah. know each other. I mean, yeah, <laughs> we can assume. <laughs> yeah, are you able to watch the new season of Taskmaster, Jim? Yeah, and like Richard Herring is on the new series, which I, you know, I love Richard Herring. I watched all. He's got the. That's why I know all these. A lot of the British comedy is from watching. I started watching a few years, several, well, probably three or four years ago now, like Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theater podcast, which he basically just interviews British comedians. So it was like I stumbled across it because I was looking up something about somebody specific and I was like, oh, here's an interview with him. And I didn't, had no idea who Richard Herring was. And then I started watching, he's like hundreds of interviews and he's tons of other, he does all these other podcasts and, but he interviews all the British comedians. And so I just started watching all those and that's really where I got a lot of my British comedy knowledge from his show. All right, I'll go through my list real quick. So Taskmaster, I loved it. Still watching it, savoring it. It's fantastic. The 1977 film House that we mentioned with Michael. I don't mm-hmm. know if you guys have seen that yet. No, I haven't watched it's it yet. So good. It, it's on, it reminds on my me list. of um, taking all the technical prowess of what Lucas was doing with Star Wars and applying it in just a, a bizarre way just like michael said just such a clashing tones that came together perfectly class action park which rick i think you absolutely need to watch <laughs> have you seen it yeah i've i've seen ads for it yeah it is a blast until it becomes a super bummer and then you know of course it's a it's an analogy for what's going on in the united states today <laughs> but it, i don't know i'd love you to see it because i have a i have so many different feelings about it like there's this prevailing feeling that we all think that somebody should be taking care of us, right? I think that's sort of this this common. I think it's a, a thing of the people of our of the current day is, well, where the hell are the guardrails? I remember going down to the University of Missouri, and we all went out to the cliffs, and it was just this huge cliff that we're all sitting on drinking beer, and I'm like, where are the guardrails? Because I could just step right <laughs> off this thing and die. And they're like, yeah, idiot, don't step off that thing and die. And you'll be okay. You will live. And I was like, 
because I, mean, I remember being a kid sitting on the street, picking at the tar in the street, thinking, where does it end? Where's the concrete end? Like, does it end? <laughs> like, is there an end to it? I remember seriously thinking, like, is there a point where, like, there's no sidewalk? Of course there is, right? I just wasn't in my sphere. But then I go down to the University of Michigan, and I was like, oh, we can... You can buy a gun in a parking lot here. You can you can you can <laughs> climb a cliff, but nobody like says stop. There's no security guard or anything. So anyway, that action park. I was like, where does the line of accountability start, and where does the line of accountability and where does personal accountability start, and where does uh, social accountability start? Yeah, responsibility. Yeah, I try and turn those things upside down in my head. I shouldn't. I should just be like, no, people should be taking better care of us. But I, but I don't. I'd be interested in your reflection on it. Right? Well, I only have a vague understanding, but it's it's basically a, an amusement park with rides that could kill people, right? That did kill people. And yeah, that did kill people, and so. The que- the deeper question is 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 it the the park, it's it's whose responsibility is, is it when you get on a ride? And and obviously you know the answer is if you're going to run an amusement park, you need to take care of. You can't kill the people who are going to your park. <laughs> um, but then you know there was also that. What I'm referring to is when we grew up in the 80s and 90s. I think that there was this sense of self destruction like nihilism or I don't know what you call it, that like people were seeking. I know I was seeking it. Um, uh, my mother's friends or my friend's mothers told me they were surprised I was alive, that I lived past 25 because it was clearly I was running towards death as fast as I possibly could. It seemed like a lot of people who went to this park wore that as a badge of honor until, of course, the park turned on them you know, it bit them too hard. Like, you know, the, the scars are great, but the permanent injuries and the deaths right. were where you had to draw a line. Something to think about. Yeah, and it's it's that idea. I mean, I, the, the story about free, you know, some of the stories about free-range children and everything like that, and just somebody, you know, people our age talking about how everybody broke their arms, you know, and broke their legs when they were kids. Like, there was always one kid in your class who had a cast, right? And that just doesn't happen anymore, right? right? Is kids don't get hurt like that. Yeah, people don't whip Nerf balls at people's pinkies to break them. <laughs> yeah. People who don't drink milk or are super wimps who can't catch a Nerf ball don't get their fingers broken anymore. <laughs> don't have a BB bullet permanently embedded in their skin. Right, right yeah. <laughs> I'm watching The Vow, which is a, a HBO documentary on the self-help group turned uh, sex cult uh, on the East Coast, oh. only New York who a uh, previous guest of the show was uh, almost, not almost involved in, but somebody tried to recruit him to, to recruit this, him. Wow. this situation. Wow. And he immediately knew it was bullshit and immediately got himself <laughs> out of it and immediately disconnected himself from all those people who tried to get him into it. Um, so again, I go back to like, you know, what are you thinking? Are you paying attention to what's going on? I, I, I mean, I'm really struggling with, accountability. Well, you saw what was going on, right? You, and all these people are really smart people. They're smarter than me. But I know if I walked in that situation, I'd be like, this is fucked. I'm out of here. Like, I guess one of the benefits of my upbringing as a child is I now know what horrible people are and can spot them pretty quick. People who are trying to be good people to everyone get suckered into this bullshit. But at the same time, I'm like, you're a lot smarter than me, how could you possibly be suckered by this shit? That's that idea of different types of intelligence, right? There's street smarts, all sorts of <laughs> street smarts or emotional intelligence. Yeah. yeah. Just because you're good at one thing and being in academia, I mean, that's, it's kind of a plague because 
I don't think it's even, you know, just like common sense and stuff like that. It's just like people who are very good at one specific thing sometimes get delusional and think they're good at everything. <laughs> and 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 terrible things and I know that happens everywhere, but especially in academia, it's it's terrifying because sometimes it's like, wow, I don't think you know how to be a person. <laughs> I think you're very successful at what you do, but that doesn't mean you should be, you know, president. Doesn't mean you should be the boss. You know, and there there are people, and I'm not talking about a specific person, but you'll see people who are like, I, I think I should be running things. And you're like, oh, no, <laughs> no, you should not. And, and you're very good at what you do, and you're very smart, but you would kill us all. <laughs> you would run us into the ground, you know, and it's, but it's, it's because they're, they're smart people. They can't, they sometimes can't see their limitations. Yeah. I watched uh, Perry Mason, uh, the HBO. Oh, the new. Remake yeah. of it. Um our previous guest, Michael McLost, is in it oh, for wow. a couple episodes. It's and I watched it. I think for that reason, because I try and watch most of the stuff he's in, and it actually is really good. I was I was uh, enjoyed it quite a bit. I like the actor. He uh, was in the Americans. Yeah, this is just as good, and he's a, he's really good in it. Um, he does good American accents too. He does. It's always creepy to hear him talking as an Englishman. Or a Scot? What is he? Irish? I can't remember what he is, but it's pretty pretty different. I've only seen him be an American, so I'm assuming he's American. Yeah, I know. I know. He does really well. But I've heard interviews, and he's like, well, it was easy to do the Americans because he was playing a Russian who's learning, who's, who's pretending to be an American. So any time that he would slip, he could use that as a, an excuse. But he, I never felt like he slipped. But he, but the, he was playing. So basically, he would slip anytime he slip. He'd slip into a Russian accent. So that's that's how artful of an of an artist he is. Right, right, exactly. Speaking of English accents, I watched Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Um, it was okay. Have you which, guys seen it? Which one? The the movie with? Oh, is that a remake? The movie? Did I? Well, there was a TV <laughs> series. Yeah, there's a there was TV Alec. show. Oh, I watched much the movie. That's with you should watch the t- yeah, yeah the Alec Guinness yeah Uh-oh. it's from uh, it was on British television like nineteen seven late seventies it was on American like PBS in the late seventies. Come on, Chris. I knew I fucked up there. <laughs> it's it's really great. It's like six hours long, you know, six episodes, so it's way more detail. I like the movie too. The remake was I seem to remember being pretty good. The seventies show is Alec Guinness one is like way more uh, more realistic, I think, or what I would I believe espionage the world to be it's like really dull and bureaucratic the new newer movie was kind of like that but it was still a little it wasn't exciting (laughs) right (laughs) but it was still like their office the office building where the the agency's building was too nice and that's the thing like in the, the 70s the tv show it's like just totally just dingy little bureaucrat office the, the main headquarters is like these little offices and it, it just is is way grittier and kind of more bleak speaking of alec guinness my next thing on the list was the lady killers i loved it i thought it was absolutely great except that old women shouldn't have parrots my wife has these parrots and they're gonna i realized i, I was like how long is this parrot gonna live and she's like 30 <laughs> years i'm like wait a minute this fucking parrot is gonna outlive me <laughs> I, don't, I, you know, because I bury all the animals at our house. I'm like, this parrot's going to bury me. I don't like that. I don't like the idea of timing out on a pet. And that old lady, you know, those parrots, they're going to be there for a while. She is not. 
Um, that reminds me because I, I Adam Buxton, the Sleefer mods were on Adam Buxton's podcast, and they were just talking and passing about old ladies with birds, like. It was just some weird, like, it's like a total English thing with her. Like, yeah, those, those old ladies and everybody would have this bird. And <laughs> it reminds me of that. It's like, yeah, it's like an English thing, having the... Maybe that's why they call them birds? Having the, I don't know, but yeah. we've got yeah. upwards of 30 birds here. It's happening here, guys. Yeah. It's not... I mean, it's starting to creep me out a little bit. Like <laughs> that, that may make me not want to visit. I don't, I don't like birds. You don't like birds? Well... The parrots fly, they fly around the room. <laughs> they sit on my toothbrush. It, it's bad. It's, oh, <laughs> yeah, that, oh, that's just like a nightmare. So you, you, have, a, I had a, you have an aviary, an official, like, yeah, it's like called a e- bedroom. It's called a master bedroom. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Oh, I could not handle we that. Have, that would give me a heart attack. We have cats too. And one of the cats killed one of the parrots. Oh. So I was like, you know, I was like, this, you fucking playing with fire here. Fun. You got yeah. cats, you got dogs. <laughs> You got parrots, but the chickens and the ducks, they can, they can handle themselves. The, n- nobody goes near them. <laughs> I just had, our, our family has rats now, or three members of our family have rats, and I'm, I'm just held hostage in the house with rats. Um, and and s- someone had the rat on their shoulder and then leaned in to talk to me, and the rat crawled off of their shoulder onto the back of my head, and I nearly, <laughs> nearly died. <laughs> It's just such a creepy feeling having an animal and then birds just flying randomly around. Oh, awful. Yeah. Scares me. It's, it's pretty wild. Um, that's, why, that's why I have a house. Right, just to keep, keep those animals. animals out. You said that your family of rats, like your single family, is lice. My family is lice now. <laughs> it is. It's, it, what's funny is, is they have, they're, they're in my older son's cage, uh, room and they're, they're in a cage. <laughs> they're in your older son's cage. No, cage. it's cage. That's actually the story of a friend of ours, like when he was a kid. <laughs> it was so out of control when he was a little kid that they uh, turned his um, crib over <laughs> to keep him in the crib some part of the day. And then the mailman one day, he was talking to the mailman and he said, do you want to see my cage? (laughs) (laughs) They would jokingly call it his cage, but he would just destroy the house, you know, if he was just totally. Um, But yeah, yeah, the rats, rats actually did a great escape the other night. My older son woke up and there were three rats asleep on him (laughs) and they had, he had left the cage open, but then he's got these kind of walls up so they can wander around in a corner of the room. And they, they had finally figured out how to chew through the wall and got out. <laughs> and he woke up with three rats sitting on him in the middle of the night. The Boys, which is a, like a super anti-superhero TV show. People keep telling me that's good. It's really yeah. good, yeah. And um, the books, I didn't realize, were written by the guy who wrote the Preacher series, which I love the Preacher series. Mm. Uh, it kind of scratched all my anti-religious itches that I had as a young teenage boy. And so I'm, I got the books to the boys and I'm going to read them because this show was great. Gandhi. Have you guys ever seen the film Gandhi? Yeah. So I had to have a colonoscopy. And so I decided to, to, uh, to, to pair a good thing, good film to pair with a colonoscopy is Gandhi. <laughs> well, he had to fast for 21 days and I fasted for 42 hours. So twice as much as him sort of. Um, and, uh, you know, it wasn't that bad for me. Uh, I, I loved it. I loved Gandhi. Uh, John Ratzenberger was in Gandhi. (laughs) Wow. He played the guy that drove Candace Bergen around. (laughs) (laughs) 
Candace Bergen was in Gandhi. See, now I'm going to have to watch it again. I have, I, I know I watched it, but that was so long ago. What year was that? 80? 82. Wow. Oh, jeez. Okay. And then I watched uh, Thursday Night Football, where I wouldn't normally mention it, but it was the Jets versus the Broncos. And Troy Aikman at one point says, he referenced the end of Heaven Can Wait. He's like, is this crazy or what? This is just like the end of Heaven Can Wait. He's like, Mr. Pendleton. I was like, Troy Aikman? I don't even know what the fuck you're talking about. Do you think ever, do you think anybody watching Monday Night Football gets what you're saying? So, Rick, you've recently seen Heaven Can Wait. What did Troy Aikman mean? Warren Beatty, the dead football player, his spirit goes into the body of another football player who appeared to have died on the field. And then all of a sudden he jumps up and wins the game. Did something like that happen? Yeah. A guy went down and then like he, he got up and was like awesome. It was, a, it was a weird... Yeah. Maybe he actually thought, he's getting a little senile and actually thought that Warren Beatty had actually <laughs> taken over this player's body and this is a pretty life. good good is a pretty good looking player so i don't think he would have made that mistake <laughs> and and then i was like i wish we could just seen that so that you thought you're like oh maybe i was wrong about sports like is that what they do all the time they're talking about all these old 70s films <laughs> happy happy joy joy the uh documentary about uh, Ren and stimpy wow mm. I've heard that there are problematic Ooh. things. Is it is it an official? Yeah, okay. Yeah, because I was, yeah. It's like Class Action Park where like 75% of the thing is just an absolute blast and then the last 25% is just a total bummer. Uh, House of the Devil, which was interesting. It was basically a modern day horror film made to look like it was a 70s horror film. You know how like when you watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's made so cheaply with that old grainy film that it kind of looks like a snuff film. So you're like, the just the look of it makes you feel uncomfortable. You're like, I shouldn't be watching this because this these are real people and this is really happening. I think they try to recreate that with House of the Devil. But when you do it digitally, you can just see the difference. And I'm curious, how many snuff films have you seen? Uh, well, I saw Faces of Death, so I don't know if that was real or not, but that's as close as right. I've come to watching a snuff film. Uh, what's our next movie, Rick? The next film is The President's Analyst from 1967, James Coburn film. If you were offered the role today for a current president to be his analyst, would you take it, Rick? <laughs> Oh, I'd love, yeah, but I, I think the current president, depending on when this comes out. Um, <laughs> it's not going to change. <laughs> it's, it's probably impervious to, to therapy. Do you think he has an analyst? There's no way. If he does, if he, if he does that person is not doing a very good job. <laughs> I would take that job in a heartbeat, except you'd get COVID. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Lost and Found and Rewound is fully funded by Lost and Found and Rewound Foundation Funds. Lost and Found and Rewound does not use crowdfunding because our listeners have better things to do with their funding. There's no need to post reviews of Lost and Found and Rewound because our listeners have more valuable things to do with their time. In all sincerity, thank you for listening to the show. We truly appreciate it. 
been a presentation of the Lotus Pod Podcasting Network.